Welcome to the Art Stays Here Coalition's new podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. In the series, we'll hear from folks affected by the ongoing arts, music, and cultural displacement that's happening across the country. These include artists, musicians, and other creatives, as well as developers, policymakers, funders, operators, arts and cultural leaders, and more. They will share their stories and their own voices to best communicate the impact that cultural displacement has had on individuals and communities and how we can choose to make it stop. Welcome to episode two, part one of the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations where we talk with the ownership team of New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and New Alliance Gallery, which collectively have been displaced twice and rebuilt twice. Part one of this episode talks about the original New Alliance on Boylston Street in Boston's Fenway neighborhood, which used to house live music venues, radio stations, the Boston Phoenix alternative weekly newspaper, and creative enclaves of music recording studios, independent record labels, music mastering, band rehearsal, artist studios, in particular, an old tire warehouse, which had an entire ecosystem in one building. Later in part one, we'll discuss the first displacement and move to the EMF building in Cambridge's Central Square. Part two will continue the conversation into the displacement from EMF and the move to Union Square Somerville what it took to rebuild for a second time, how the community is still a creative collective, and how most of the gang are still together. Hi, uh, my name is Amy Bennett. I am a founding member of the Art Stays Here Coalition. We are here with the new podcast series called Culture Crisis Conversations. We talk to different people involved in artist displacement, musicians, artists, uh, government, activists, the media, developers, all kinds of people that it touches. And today we are here to interview the folks from New Alliance and hear about their um, many times displaced yet many times have come back story. Can you first um, introduce yourself, give your affiliation or your role involved with New Alliance? Alvin Long, founder of the original New Alliance co-founder of this uh, third new alliance with Nick and Ethan. And where do you live? Jamaica Plain. Great. Nick? Nicholas, uh, owner of New Alliance East and co-establisher of the space that we are in now. And this is our third space. Yeah, and I'm Ethan Dussault, and I'm the head engineer co-operator of New Alliance Audio. And uh, I started at New Alliance back in 99 as an intern and have been with it in some capacity since. And uh, happy that we have our third home at the New Alliance gallery floor in Union Square, Somerville. Which is where we are recording right now. Why don't we first talk about the first New Alliance, which was in the Fenway, and why don't we assume that no one knows about it and let's talk about the space, how you started it, who all was there, what the vibe was, and also, I guess, for that matter, what the Fenway was like a mm. whole lifetime ago. Fenway was great. I wish it was still like that. Mm-hmm. It's like a city, but not like all built up like it was now. But uh, we had a, our first space over there. We had as bands where, where the Linwood was for many years and church later. In that block there, there was always band spaces. So... Uh, my musical partner lived over there. He had a space where he lived, and and uh, we rehearsed in the basement of that place. And then coming over there one day, uh, we found out that the big place at the corner of Boylston and Jersey was for rent. So we moved over there, took our own space, and then a couple other people took smaller spaces, and then the whole thing just started organically turning into a space. Um, I was guess the was it a warehouse space? This is a 1312 Boylston Street. Okay. Was that the tire building? The tire building, the RFT building, yeah. Had they uh, manufactured tires there prior? They were, uh, yeah, they were like wholesale them in and out and fixing cars, and there was tires, the back 
you guys remember this? The back uh, driveway was paved with tire stems. Little, <laughs> you know, like the little stem out of a tire. You know, smashed down. Yeah. Yeah, it was full of tires. They emptied them out, put bands in, and it worked out really good for a long time until the Red Sox won the World Series. That was a good run, though. I mean, what what, what year did you... That'd be 1987 yeah. to 2004, the Red Sox won the World yeah. Series, and then our days were numbered at that point. Why? Uh, money grab for the neighborhood. Everybody just... Uh, money... Every, the Red Sox partnered up with everybody. They were partnering up with people and just like, we're the Red Sox. You know what I mean? Let's buy this, you know, McDonald's in the parking lot next to it. We're the Red Sox. Let's buy this Hojo complex. And they just started partnering up the whole neighborhood with everybody and uh, with long-term plans to go up real high in some of those spots. So it was like the practice space. It was at, you know, Fifth Avenue and Broadway in New York. You know, it was just... <laughs> so it became... Uh, sought after hot, expensive real estate, which yep. forced folks out. Happened very quickly. So how about Nick and Ethan? What was your first um, array over there? So I showed up in Boston in the mid-90s after graduating with all my music friends from Lowell, UMass. There's a lot to love about Lowell. You love it. You Lowell, you love it. That was the bumper sticker everybody had on their car, which was not what Lowell was like, but... Uh, it was a pretty good wink and a nudge. The uh, So we all came to Boston, and uh, my friends and I were practicing at a space underneath the D'Angelo's at the corner of Boylston and Brookline, right? It was Brookline Street. It was yeah. right, Brookline basically Ave. right Brookline next to Brookline Ave, right next to the FNX building, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was atrocious over there. It would flood. And there was, in the late 90s, maybe, what, 97? Was it 98 or 97? Big, that big the, flood. The giant rainstorm that flooded the T when there was like literally water pouring out of the Kenmore Square T stop. It was like otherworldly. I'd never seen anything like it. And so our space was filling with water and I was listening to the news and I was like, well, I better walk over there. I lived in uh, Forest Hills at the time. So we walked all the way there from Forest Hills because the T was shut down. And all our gear was floating around in the practice space. So I just started getting everything up on top of the giant PA speakers that our friend had made in high school or whatever. They were just these giant wooden boxes with 12-inch drivers in them that we didn't care about. So all the drums were on top of that. And the next day I called the first place that came up in the phone book that was a studio nearby, and it was him. He answered the phone. He's like, I'm standing right next to a guy. He hands the phone to a guy named Sean. Within a half hour, I had a new space, and we walked my stuff over that afternoon. And their space had all... Sean, you know, McGauley, right? Yeah. So their space had also flooded, but it was like six inches of water instead of like three feet of water. So it was a bonus. It was like a total upgrade. And the room was giant, and uh, we shared that room with Sean and Sandy. Yeah. And, And the room that I had actually inherited was only storage at the time, because it had been a studio for years before I got there. It was plant, uh, Room 9. Was it that what Ducky called it? Room 9 from Outer Space. Yeah, so Ducky Carlisle had been in there doing records for years and years and years. Jay McCaffrey was in there doing records for years before he got a space upstairs next to their office. Which became the Black Egg Studio. Which became Black Egg Studio. Yeah. And, you know, that's that was my little cave, and that's what I... I was there every minute of the day. I would leave when Sandy's band showed up to practice, and I would come back when they were done and continue whatever I was working on. Who else was there? Oh, uh, everybody. Yeah, early days you had uh, Till Tuesday, uh, Three and a Half Girls, uh, Grind, uh, Seika. Hmm. Was it only music rehearsal? Did you have the studio then, or was there Yeah, visual- we had the studio, mm-hmm. and... Bob Logan eventually built another small studio, and there was a studio upstairs that was always in the hands of the neighborhoods. John Hardcore, the bass player, built it, and then when he he got out of music later, Minahan took it over. And that and, was Woolly Mammoth. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. He called it Woolly Mammoth. So he was, he was uh, already in the building ahead of that though too. Everybody was over there, and then when a new uh, a larger space would open up, it'd move move over to it. Right. So let's talk, before we get to Ethan's story, it's making me picture the Fenway, and it's making me think about BCN, and you just said FNX, and let's also say the Phoenix, 
um, obviously the rat, um, all kinds, like that whole area was at New England School of Photography, right? Like it was just an arts and cultural mecca. Correct. I realized that came to an end. I told an intern to go to uh, the uh, post office in Kenmore Square, you know, to mail some packages. He said, "Where's what's Kenmore Square? Yep. And that was in uh, 95. This all is that, incredibly, it's incredibly out. sad to think about. And I mean, you're talking about the Hojos and, you know, other stuff. It's, um, I mean, things change, but so like, is there, there's nothing left. All the things we just mentioned do not exist in we, the Fenway. We used to go to the Hojos. The original Hojos was straight out of the 60s or 70s. It had the big round bar where there'd be like a really sad comedian, like Andy Kaufman style thing going on. And we would go over there with bands, you know, when we were, stopping recording for the day let's go get a drink they were staying in the hotel upstairs and uh that place was an amazing time capsule i don't know how often you hung out in there but mark told me about it and we started going there yeah and uh you know they've turned it into this hojoko which is kind of amazing because it's like gastro and it's like yeah arts and culture and rock and roll and all this stuff and it's like 60 dollars to park and 25 dollars for a cheeseburger not as authentic as the little as the original one, but they kept it on point for you know. Yeah, I mean they do have a pool. Yeah, that's nice. And I guess the other hotel, you know, is like a museum to that era, right? It has stuff from Lansdowne Street and stuff from the Rat and stuff from all the stuff we just talked about. And um, I don't know. I'd rather just have the stuff rather than a curated uh, plastic covered version of it. It's a little different. Uh, Ethan, let's talk about your first time into the tire building. Yeah, so um, around 98, I uh, went to school for recording, inspired by like my favorite bands of the time. And uh, I was going to, so I was going to college at a place in the Back Bay called Massachusetts Communications College. It was a small two year broadcast and media school where it was basically billed as like, you know, we'll teach you all the stuff Berkeley will teach you about recording, but not make you do any of like the stuff you don't want to do. Like academia. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, all, all my adjunct professors for my liberal arts classes, they were all like MIT professors and BU professors. So like I had real liberal arts classes while I was there. It was just, you know, I wasn't like, you know, taking, you know, base courses or whatever, you know? So, um, and as a requirement, as like most schools, you know, you have to find an internship. And so, you know, one day a bunch of us were just hanging out at one of the studios. there, just listening to local records. And, you know, I had a very specific style of music that I was into. And I started to realize that all of the loud and angular and, and kind of like noisy rock bands of the Boston music scene that I was attached, attracted to and loved. They were all making records out of this place in a basement in the Fenway called new Alliance. And so, you know, liner notes got me to go to school for recording. And then when I was there for recording, the liner notes helped me find what would be my home away from home for the rest of my life so far. <laughs> Can you believe that some and, people don't know what liner notes are? Uh, it's a sad thing. Mm-hmm. The lost art of liner notes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would be a great exhibition, would it not? Yeah. Okay. It was a Barbero EP. Um, that and I so I went to I went to a show at the Middle East. That was a it was a I believe it was Crack Torch, which was Nick's old band and Barbero. And I think maybe it was like Shiner, some some band that had like a bunch yeah, of. We opened you know, for Shiner. It was in the late. It was in the late nineties. I can't remember, uh, very late nineties. Cause I think my internship started in, in 99, but I walked up to the guy playing bass in Barbaro after the set. And I was like, you guys are great bands. You're totally my style. I know that you make records out of this place. I need an internship. And he was like, call this number on Monday morning. So I did. And the next thing you know, I'm meeting Alvin, I'm meeting Nick and Mark uh, you know, and I'm in and I'm just like, Alvin's showing me where all the trash cans are. We're going to empty this trash can. Intern we're going to yeah. empty that trash can. This is where the fridge is. This is where all the empties are. Take these empties. We're going to walk these outside, you know, and then, it, and then it went from taking out the trash to, uh, answering phones to setting up mics to doing, an, doing an overnight session to get my feet wet on, uh, on the tape machine, which we still have. And, um, it was 
you know, it was the, it was the dream. It was the dream. You know, it's like you, it's like you hear about, you know, you, 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 you find a studio that's making music that speaks to you. You reach out to them, you get the internship, you go in and you assist and you do whatever it takes to make sure the sessions go smooth and everybody's having a good time. And, and your, your priority is making good art with good people. And, um, it was, a, it was an immediate, you know, match and fit. And it was, it was magic. And, um, you know, I'm hearing about all this, all these other spaces, you know, there was, yeah, we had small church that we had black egg. We had woolly mammoth, um, amps versus ohms, amps versus ohms early edition. Right. Oh, yeah. And then the predecessor to Matt Oak. So there was this guy, Craig Riggs, who used to make all his records at new Alliance back in the day. And then he, had a practice space when it was there no he had a practice space upstairs that he built a control room in and then he called it the unknown studio mark and i did a bunch of records up there too yeah yeah i i I want records up there yeah 16 track yeah yeah so i mean that that building had that building had not only did it have tons of music rehearsal spaces with some of the best musicians in boston constantly like practicing in there constantly but it also was a home to you know six working recording studios each with their own style each with their own voice um and then you know also there were record labels curve of the earth records um you know later on there was the 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 uh, big wheel recreation hydra head tortuga yeah um family doghouse family down there right wonder drug wonder drug yeah it, it was it was it was it uh, there's nothing like it today in Boston, and it was it was an incredibly incredibly special place culturally because it just the the footprint of the building, like the the reach of the arts and cultural impact that came out of that building was far greater than you would think a square that square footage would be capable of, you know. So it was, um, you know. You, you, as a kid in college, I, I would, I would like, you know, one of the things that we had to do was to look up big studios and kind of like write papers on studios. And even though my final paper was on the record plant and it wasn't on Sound City, I, I kind of quickly looked at New Alliance as being like the East Coast Sound City. It was like, it was art forward. It was a little weird. It wasn't totally like it wasn't down. There's no like hospital vibe. That was not. There was like it was lived in. It was comfortable. There was art on the walls. It was creatively decorated. The sound was, you know, a unique sound in Boston, much like Sound City was a unique sound in Los Angeles. Um, but you know, it was un- it was also very uniquely Boston, and um, so it was uh, there was that connection that 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 arts connection that I made just made it like. A, a source of like pride being there in that old space. And that's something that I try to carry on, you know, if, you know, every time we've had to move into a new space, but, um, but aside from the different kinds of, let's say, you know, music or music adjacent things there, it also created an ecosystem. You know, you could practice there, you could, you could record there, you could, if you could get a deal, you could, you know, I think well, that even if you didn't have a deal, Wonder Drug upstairs was pressing CDs for people and Duncan Wilder, who's in our space still was doing CD layouts for people. So like, you know, you come in, you practice, you record, you go upstairs, the guy designs your band photo. And then someone else was Jen there doing publicity at the time. Yep. Or Jen was over there too for yep. a while. Jen, yeah. Steve Ricardo had an office management company and he had, and then, uh, um, Kelly Dimbat took it over after Steve left. And it was also just a, you know, I I don't want to speak for you, but if I remember correctly, you kind of had, Alvin, you had an open door policy and people could just come to you in that building and just say, hey, and, you know, it would be a, a space to like bounce ideas, you know, and just like kind of have like a, a community outside of whether or not they were on curve of the earth records or whether they were recording at new Alliance or whatever. And it's just like, it was like a, a spot for people just to connect to. Yeah. It was its own hub for a lot of stuff. Like even when I showed up there just to end up in that practice space and I inherited the little corner closet, that was the control room. My first room that I ever worked out of, uh, you know, New Alliance was right down the hall and Mudrock had just done a big deal and was moving to L.A. So there was time on the calendar 
and he handed keys to Mark and said, Hey, get your friends in here. Let's, you know, make some music. So like mud rock was just getting people to come show up and hang out. Alvin had his friends come in to hang out. There was a record player with tons of vinyl. People would just be spinning records. I have a question. Who's mud rock? <laughs> Our old partner, Andrew Murdoch, AKA mud rock got a big hit. One of the biggest hits out of here with the Godsmack record. First one that sold four million copies was done at the studio. Hmm. So he capitalized on that success and getting to do the second one too, to uh, move to Los Angeles. So that's how Gail and I wound up with the studio. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually in New York at that time. So Hmm. I came back and everything was still there before it went away. So let's talk about how did you find out that you had to leave or how did you notice the neighborhood changing or talk about the Red Sox or any of that? How did all that happen? First clue of any time you have to leave is when they start drilling on the corner of their property. You know, like they come in with things, start drilling core core samples samples time and they go, Oh, it's just for insurance purposes. You know, core samples. What was that about? Anytime you're building a big building, you got to, you know, drill down to the earth's core and look at the mud and the shale and see what it's like. So <laughs> they start doing that around places, you know, because that means they're planning on going up 20 stories. You know, yeah. They you see the already. guys with the tripods and the doing measurements and stuff. Oh, meaning can it hold such a high yeah. rise, et cetera. Can we, yeah. can we drill down into he the wasn't, rock? Yeah. He wasn't lying when he said it was for insurance purposes, but that wasn't your question necessarily. <laughs> Is the next guy's insurance purposes. Yeah, the next guy's insurance So did you purposes. have a lease, or was it like month to uh, when month? You're, when you're a band or a studio, it's really hard to get a lease, you know? So every place we've ever had, we've never had a lease, huh? This is the first place we've ever had a lease. Oh, yeah. We have one here. How were you told you had to get out, and how much time did you have, and what was the transition from there to After Cambridge? you get the guys drilling, and sometimes they want to drill inside the building, too. You know what I mean? Like with a smaller one. And, uh, you know, just throw cement and mud all over the place. And um, after that comes all kinds of speculation. Hey, we got to be out of there. You got to be out of there in 12 months. Oh, I heard 18 months. I heard six. You know, it just keeps going and going. It always takes longer than you think, but eventually it comes to an end. It usually takes them a couple of years, depending on how many people hold themselves up in the building or it's like going to last forever. And then one week it's over. It's really shattering every time. Little did we know at the time when we started to hear these things, the 12 months, the 18 months, or we don't know this. I mean, now that we've been through it more than once, you start to see the developer playbook patterns at play. It's there's a, there's a confusion, a divide, a divide and conquer and confusion tactic that some of these not all, but some of these developers like to take with the tenants of these buildings. Sure. Because when tenants are formed as an association, they're united, generally they're able to accomplish a lot more. But if the developers can get in there ahead of time and get all the tenants to to and just pick them off one by one so there's no unity, there's no association, there's no collective bargaining or anything, then that, that benefits the developers, you know, in terms sure. of them getting that. Maybe you give tenants uh, 15 grand to leave peacefully. You know what I mean? And then he's like... So-and-so gets a buyout to move to Waltham and such-and-such are out on the street, you know? Yep. Yep. When, yeah, some, like, some tenants don't know to advocate for themselves. They get nothing but a, but a boot and then they, and then they don't know where they're going to end up. And then some more savvy tenants are like, oh, I I negotiated $25,000 for me to relocate. And, you know, sadly, I mean, at the time, a lot of us, I mean, I was only in my early 20s when this first displacement happened. Um, but we, we didn't negotiate much out of them. No, no. And, uh, you know, but, you know, one of the reasons why now I'm a volunteer with Art Stays Here Coalition why I'm doing a lot of the work that I'm doing with Amy is because I know now that if we can unite arts buildings then and and get everybody collectively bargaining together for their for their craft, their art, their careers – then, then it helps everybody, and, and you don't have people getting picked off one by one because it's a it's it's much cheaper to the developer to have that happen than it is to have to relocate them. You know. Well, it's also a completely um, emotional time when you are being displaced in terms of where are you going to go, yep. how are you going to move your stuff, are you going to be able to afford it, fear 
and there's a lot of um, preying on creatives during that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, you know, I can't blame I can't blame artists being displaced for being a little out of sorts emotionally and mentally when you've you know you've been in a building for 10 15 years you've got your career finally working the way you want it to work and then because you don't own the, you don't own the the unit or the building you know you're at the whims of others and then they decide okay thank you so much for making this a vibrant community and making it a place where people want to move and a place where people want to you know work and live for and raising play, the property values for raising the property value in the area but now you've got to go we'll turn your dive bar into a gastropub See you later. Yep. Yep. So were you thinking about where are we going to go? What What were you thinking? What were you talking about? What were you? It's incredible. We, we had no ideas, really, I guess. And then, uh, but uh, Bill Desmond came along and had an idea for a place. He had his eyes on Central Square. So he got that and sort of put me in charge of going over there and telling everybody else, to tell telling the good people from thirteen twelve to come, you know, as well as others. So yeah. that was the what was known as the EMF That's building. The EMF building. Yeah. I mean, Des gets credit for he's always looking at buildings. He showed up with a building already in mind to try to get as many of us to go as possible. We got a great group of us to do it, and we all did it together. And honestly, we got 12 years out of it, which is kind of incredible. So did most people from 1312 go to EMF? A lot. A lot did. And what was was the EMF building like? EMF building, the other building was uh, concrete and industrial, you know, due to being a car grease monkey pit. And uh, the new place was due to it being a warehouse was all wooden. Hmm. So the place was very, very wooden. And, and two had, two floors, three floors. Had three floors, and it was and an elevator that went up, three floors in a basement, and an elevator that worked perfectly up and down the whole deal. So now we're talking about Central Square in Cambridge, also very close to at the time, TT's the Middle East, and uh, well, what is Central Square? Oh, the Blue Gallery. Yes. Phoenix uh, Landing had shows for decades. I mean, there's there was a lot of clubs there too. Lots of lots of lunch meetings at River Gods. Sadly, yeah. no longer there. Right. One of the Brookline best, lunch, one of the breakfast best meetings. Mm-hmm. So it was a great neighborhood again because it had even more clubs. It was like the cultural center of Cambridge, really, mm-hmm. as they call it these days. And uh, we were already there hanging out every night. If you had to load out for a show, your commute was one block. Mm. And it was pretty amazing. So um, did... The EMF building need to be built out or subdivided or? It was a raw space when we got there and it was still full of electrical supplies. So there was a weird, this weird transition where Cambridge had allowed Des to build out some of it to see how it goes and then continue to build out more stuff. Uh, The area where I was in the front on Brookline Street was the first area built out. So I was the first actual thing with a door on it and I was working within maybe a month or whenever we started yeah the new pretty al- quick yeah. the new alliance engineers and and interns and everybody we all we all banded together and we were forced to work with and we started building the studios the Matt Nick's mastering room and then the big uh you know new alliance audio the the, the recording and mixing room and, so des uh, yeah. the deal we had with with des you know he's like my guys will build the outer walls you guys do your inner walls and so that's what it was. I was literally on tour while that was happening in another country. And I came back and the outer walls were there. And, you know, Ian and our debate, Matt DeBasey and other people that were helping us that actually knew how to build stuff. He was a contractor by trade and training and he grew up doing that stuff. You know, he knew how to help us float a floor, how to get a wall within a wall where they were decoupled as much as possible, how to build a sort of floating ceiling. So uh, we were just banging at it as fast as we could to get as many rooms going as we could. And the city was really nice to us because they realized that we had to try to work and be in a construction site. And they did multiple variances to allow some businesses to be there and be open while other things were under construction. I mean, it was this real, a lot of like loose pieces fitting together to even work. But it was a rental. It wasn't yeah. a purchase. There was no leases. It was a practice space, basically. There were 
more artists and musicians that came there in addition to people from the Fenway? Yeah, there's about 50 rooms, and I'd say probably half half of the people were from the old place and then half new. And that was that was kind of due to some of the rooms being built and then some of them being added later. Like the third floor wasn't done until years and years and years after the original build out. Can you share a little bit about the difference between, let's say, moving rehearsal studios versus a recording studio? Recording studio is really hard to move. They're really hard, hard to build and everyone's always going for quality when you do them. So they're often super over overbuilt, you know. You can't take the walls with you because you've, you know, put glue between the sheetrock and put double layers of sheetrock going in different directions. I mean, <laughs> There's I, so much infrastructure that you can't take yeah, with you. I ran out of time. I had thousands of pounds of lead around my room that I couldn't remove. I didn't want to waste it. It was just going to go in a landfill. But, like, by the time I had moved all of my music gear and then all of the studio gear and then all of the infrastructure stuff that I was trying to save like some furniture and other things and thousands of records that I'd worked on that were in bins and storage and then I can't I, I have no energy to lift the floor up and roll the lead up and yeah no that wasn't I just, gonna happen I couldn't do it I ran out of energy I you know thinking about being displaced from that from that building you know as much as I'm not a fan of having been displaced or the people that the displacing i do sometimes because i am pro worker think about how much work we provided to the demolition crew who had to dismantle our studios <laughs> they got paid and we definitely drained a couple of bucks from the developer's wallet because th that studio was built and i'm and i'm proud of how it was built and i'm you know i sometimes delight in how you know thinking about what it must have taken for them to take that thing down because it would have not was not it was not an easy task and what about how much it costs? You don't have to go into dollar amounts, but you're not just moving your stuff. You have to build out a recording studio, right? Mm -hmm. So that's expensive. Oh yeah, it's like building a house inside a inside a you know someone else's in a, box inside of another yeah. inside of another room. For folks who don't know, can you give us a little bit of the play-by-play -play sure. involved with building a recording studio? So in this, so like Alvin was saying, this particular space, um, the first, the first new alliance was in a basement on a slab, so we didn't have to really worry about the floors, and the building was so concrete that the ceilings weren't even an issue either. It was more about isolating one room from the next room. That's actually not the biggest deal. You put up two frames, a couple layers of sheetrock, and make sure there's an air gap. That's insulated in between those two walls and then you make sure your doors seal correctly and you actually get away with a lot but when we moved into the emf building because it's a wooden floor with steel beams those are like drum heads they're going to vibrate they're going to transmit sound it's going to be very easy for sound to move both in the air through creating vibrations in the air through the through the floors and the ceilings but also the uh, impact vibrations so when you're stomping or if there's a kick drum on the floor if you hit that kick drum that's going to that's going to be coupled to the floor and that floor is going to vibrate and that sound's just going to travel through the building so when we when we move into EMF we quick we quickly identify the best space in the building you know we had our pick of the building where is it going to be the best spot so we identified where the where the where alvin's office was going to be where nick's mastering room was going to be where the recording studio was going to be much like this space the anchor businesses are you know like we were the right. first businesses into that building so we we set up shop and then they built a bunch of stuff kind of around, around us yeah and that's what we did on this floor when we got here right i did several layouts until we figured out what worked best for the workflow of our day-to-day -day. and then how do you fit as many friends around us Mm -hmm. So, um, so at the EMF building, because we're on this wood floor, steel beam structure, we had to float a floor above the floor. So we sealed the floor, the sub, the, the main floor, we, we rolled out what is called mass loaded vinyl or MLV. It's a, it's a way to have a high dense, um, high density material in a small amount of space so it's like well, that's where the high density part comes in it's as close so, as you can get as lead without it's, it's yeah it's it was basically the construction world's answer to lead sheeting so basically um you can you we lined the whole floor with this mass loaded vinyl and we sealed it with an aluminum tape and then uh once and we caulked the edges so basically we created this 
membrane, this airtight membrane from wall to wall all the way across the entire um, floor plate of what the studio was going to sit on. And then we knew, okay, we're going to have a live performance space and we're going to have three isolation booths um, and we're going to have a control room. So we needed to then build a separate floor for each one of those rooms. So what we did was we had two by four frames and we loaded those on top of hockey pucks. So the hockey puck acted as the decoupler from, from, from the frame to the floor. Sports Etc. in Arlington was very happy with us when we bought all those hockey pucks. Cases. So what we did is, we had cases of hockey pucks and we were just yep. like showing them yep. out. Yep. So so we I think so, there was even a hundred or more in my room. I forget. Yeah. I think I bought a box of two hundred and we used every almost two all feet. of them. Yeah. Basically every two feet you gotta yep. put one so that the frame the frame sits structurally sound on this floor. And then what we would do is we we would insulate the floor. So the hockey pucks create an air gap. And they decouple between between the subfloor and the and the floor the framing you're building right. Then you 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 insulate that entire floor with dense you know fiberglass insulation or whatever. And then we put the dense the densest plywood we could find for flooring on top of that, sealed that, and then um, and then we and at that point then we dropped the frames down on to, for the walls of each of those rooms on top of that. And then we built the, in, and then we, and then you do the flooring for inside the rooms. And what we did was we put this stuff down, which I don't think they make anymore. They, they make a version of this, but they don't, the brand I don't think exists, but at the time it was called Regipax. And what it does is it, um, it's a, it's a two by four board. That's about, I'd say half an inch thick. And you lay that down and you don't attach it. You don't couple it to the other boards. You want that to be, you don't want the seal to be firm. You want it to be a little loose. And what that board does is that is um, something that prevents sound from traveling across the floor. So, like when, so like I said, if you were just to put a kick drum down on the, on the floor that was pre-existing, and you hit it, that sound reverberates across the floor into the air everywhere. This this type of material actually deadens sound, so it doesn't travel across. And then you finish your floor with your carpet or your parquet or whatever. The walls, okay, are. Um, a two by four frame insulated with a, with the thickest insulation you can get, because you're going to have an air gap between, between the wall of your control room, the wall of your live room and the wall of the live room to the wall of the ISO booth. There's air gaps for sound purposes in, in these constructions. So then you do, then what we did was we actually, because we wanted to be able to just screw in anywhere without having to worry about hitting studs, we did a ply, plywood walls for the, for all the rooms and that made sheetrocking much easier because once the once the plywood is on the frame and that's all rigid and firm and then that's sealed, then you can just start throwing uh, sheetrock up and screw in. You don't have to worry about hitting studs. Because everything's a stud. Because everything becomes a stud, right? And so we had, um, I think it was three-quarter inch ply with two layers of five-eighths sheetrock and it was every layer had to be sealed with caulk perfectly and i gotta tell you we nailed it like it, it like the trend the sound transmission from room to room it was it was amazing it was a vast improvement over what we had at the fenway the fenway had its vibes and it was a special place in which we had it still i wish it never went away but this was one thing that emf the, the, the emf location for new alliance had those walls like it was mad it was magical the separation we had it was really nice our only um, weak spot was the floor um, the thing is, is that we built the floor design was based on the fact that we weren't going to have rooms beneath us attached to the ceilings that changed later. And this and is this, where you need a lease. And, and we, because there's no lease and because there's no, there's no, there's no way to negotiate any of these things. Like, so we you had show to up one day that. and there's construction attached to your floor and you're like, why right. did this happen? Right. Who okayed that? Right. The original thing we were told was, no, when we do this floor, we won't attach to the ceiling. That changed. Originally, there wasn't even going to be bands below us. It was going to be a dance studio or art space or some other thing. Well, you know, yeah. It is what it is. We survived. (laughs) So there was sonic excellence. I, I think so. I think a lot of people that recorded there would agree. It was a, it was a, we yeah, it was a pretty room. We had a nice place. Yeah, and Nick's room was beautiful too. It it's was. about as good as you can get in a warehouse uh, when you get to start with raw space and build yourself inside of it. And uh, you know, even functionally, 
barring the other bands and other stuff in the building, if they had a Marshall stack six feet away from my room, it didn't bother me at all because we had done all the walls right. We had floated all the floors. You could barely hear it. Yep. Even when they moved bands in below me and there was a bass rig below me with an SVT stack, it was annoying, but it wasn't like going to end my day. So recently I was talking with some musicians who rehearse at Charlestown Rehearsal Studio. And one of them said they were talking about the vibe there and whether or not musicians knew each other or you see people in the hall or in the elevators and like kind of, um, you know, what's the community there? And one person who I will not name said, it will never be like EMF. Nothing will be like EMF. And, you know, what does that mean when I say that to you? Well, because we picked all the right people when we came over. So we had a good core of people scattered all over the building and the thing ran itself. It wasn't like a, you know. Yeah. Our management company was the music art father for everyone in the building. It wasn't like there was some suit that showed up expecting rent. You go hand your rent to the guy who's literally your friend already. And who's Al? Who's Alvin? He's sitting right here. (laughs) Yes. To be literal. Sorry, we're not on video. But, uh, you know, I think the other thing that EMF did was it took all the culture of the Fenway building and then it really amped up several notches in a lot of ways. It was even closer to a lot of clubs where everyone was playing. Uh, All the touring bands could come hang out at the space between sets even. You could literally walk over and have a beer at the studio and then go back for the the final set of the evening. Uh, We would EMF radio. There's actually pre there's a pre EMF radio thing that happened at both the Fenway and at the EMF building, which was our relationship with WBCN and WFNX. Because you mentioned touring bands being able to come in. One of my one of the highlights of uh, EMF for me was doing Arctic Monkeys live to two track on tour when they stopped by uh, Chris Rucker from FNX had them do a live taping at New Alliance and uh, you know those were always really fun Um, so Chris Rucker was really great with that stuff Shred uh, from BCN was really great with that stuff we'd have a band come in you know they'd invite their uh, friends and then the radio station representatives and uh, it, you know, it would be a like small introduction and then we'd record the set live yep. and that's what they would play on the radio. It was great. But one day radio changed forever and then we started to do things on the internet, which is, I guess what EMF, that's, that's how you that's, get to EMF radio. That's how we get to EMF radio, right? So another thing Des did was he started an internet radio station with Dave Crespo. And I think there might've been some other people invested, but I don't really know that whole story. And Crespo had this, like, he's built a network. I don't know where he comes from except here somewhere, but that guy can connect dots. And so suddenly there was this internet radio station upstairs and they had bands from all over the country showing up to do interviews on their station, which was incredible. And they had weird local shows. Come down to the Middle East and come over and do an interview before or after. Uh, You know, and they had weird local programming. They had political programming. They had community programming. It was wild, the way a practice space is. Who was who? who remember, remind me again. Who all was the crew that made that engine? That was Butts. Yep. Nash. Yep. Mike Nashawati. Yeah. Um. Like he said, Crespo. Um. That girl, Casey. Casey Desmond was up there sometimes. Okay. I mean that that I mean there was a there was a dedicated crew of of people in there trying to make that herb herb. Yeah. yeah herb. Make that happen. Like, and then they kept it alive for a while. Yeah. The you inter- know, even Tom, our guitar player, Tom worked there for a couple of years. Yeah. Producing shows basically. It's a good. Crew. What happened to it? Boy, what happened? I don't know. Somehow it just ran out of, well, they did it for years and then the building went away. I was going to say the building. And got he away. moved yeah. them over to uh North beacon street. Cause there was a, a shell there that had been a studio over the years, a bunch of different things. And so they moved into that space, which was a really nice space actually for a radio station. Was it still called EMF? Yep. Uh, and they did it for a little longer and I think they just ran out of community energy. I'd like to add like a note about the, the name EMF, right? And, and what artists tend to do in terms of historic preservation. We, I think as a community took pride in the fact that this was the EMF building. We didn't try to rename it. 
We didn't try to turn it into something else. We we was like, it's electrical, old electrical supply warehouse. It's look at this cool building. It's EMF building. The sign on the the sign, the hand painted sign on the on the outside, the orange and blue, became like our colors. You know, the EMF yeah. w- written in the electrical bolts, like the letters were were sure. ele- electric bolts. Right. I mean, that we we loved that stuff and like, you know. It was probably not even recognized as the EMF building to the degree it was until it was taken over by musicians. Now the EMF building, the legend of the EMF building is that it was where yeah. all the musicians played. Everyone's story, everyone I'd meet in the neighborhood, uh, you know, oh, where, where do you guys work? Oh, we're in the EMF building down the street. They're like, oh, yeah, I tried to buy a lamp there one time and they only had <laughs> industrial stuff. You know, right. that's like everybody's story from the neighborhood was, I don't know what they do in that building. Well, now everybody, when you say EMF now everybody building, knows they, what that was music. It was yep. a music building. Yeah, we, we we had a lot of pride being in there. So um, then, so that was successful. Meaning, you moved from the Fenway. You built it out. You built it up. Different things happened. It was even more a part of a live music scene because there was more going on in Central Square then. It became a community. It became a culture and lots of businesses, lots of art, lots of music. And then it happened again. Right when we got used to it, you know, and it kept getting better and better. That's when biotech came in. It always, the neighborhood always looked like we moved into a neighborhood that we should be getting kicked out of, as does this neighborhood here. You know, and you moved in with all this biotech growth. And it lasted 12 years. It was pretty good, I guess. I mean, yeah, uh, it's pretty good. So what happened? Biotech came in and said, we'll take this building, you know? Well, big big shots from Harvard Square, but the whole neighborhood from from Kendall Square over to Cross Mass Ave and over to Cambridgeport is now all biotech. That's how what everything's based on, the whole city being the way it is. So it's like a little bit of the... I don't know how far down this rabbit hole to get, but there's a little bit of the divide and conquer of the owners slash real estate people always buying and selling buildings. And you never tell the people who are there what's going to happen because you have other plans that don't include them. Right. That's what that is. But also, you know, there was a point where if the community had been organized, we could have bought that building. Like seriously could have bought that building because it wasn't even expensive yet when that neighborhood was really starting to churn. And but nobody let us in on, on but we didn't what was know. happening. Nobody told nobody well, said, Hey guys, let's get this together. Nobody said, I can't do it, but you should. Nobody said four million sounded like forty million to us. It still does. Well, it was two million to start. Yeah. Knowing what I know now, now about displacement, had had the artists had the mind the wherewithal that they do now, now that we're back now that we're being pushed into the ocean, as some like to say you know had this had the building organized sooner brand organized sooner um and we we are like let's try to buy this building that felt like a reality then if some if if there was an art stays here coalition out around at that time telling people hey this is possible i think would be in a much different here's how we get situation you know, like subsidized loans for this kinds of thing like anyone to tell any any kind of how to get through this when it's not already too late uh, is really key, I think, because I feel like there was a lot of energy around trying to defend and save the building when it was already too late. It's too late, yeah. It was uh, already sold. Yeah, like that was done. The, the, the city should have put the chump change in to buy the building, and then had it as a feather in their cap. You know, a hundred percent. The like amount the f- of money they would spend years later on the foundry—twenty-eight million dollars on the foundry—they could have kept the EMF building in place for like five or six, probably. And it you was already I mean? fully populated, and it was, and it was already a cultural exactly. hub. It was already a cultural hub. It was already fully populated. It was being the use was maximized. It yeah. was it. Well, nobody was bothering anybody in the neighborhood. We actually the neighbors had zero problems with us because we actually didn't really the, the building didn't really bleed a lot of noise out into public. So, did you consider organizing? Did you go to your city councilor? Did you oh, what? Yeah. What did you do? Or what? What did you think you could do? And I mean, there was there was multiple local politicians trying to get on the wave and ride it out for their own publicity, and there was multiple meetings at city hall, and you know, talking to the city about how much money a building like that brings into the city, which is like 
a lot of money and how it really interconnects with the other businesses in the city, especially the clubs right up the street, you know, for the specific use of arts, culture, music. And the restaurants and the hardware store. I was trying to, yeah. And the convenience stores. I was trying to divide that up. Mm -hmm. Like five guys on my couch every single day buying two meals in the city and a 12 pack of beer to share Mm -hmm. every day. Mm Mm-hmm. And then them doing that across the hall from us and then the radio station upstairs doing that. And then every band that shows up to play, buying their dinner in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So what did you... How much money did I spend at Thornton's in the Fenway? Like (laughs) thousands and thousands of dollars. We spent so much money at those three restaurants. And then then we moved... And then then we... Yeah, right. And then moving to Central Square, it was like falafel at Brookline Lunch. Exactly. River Gods. I know Taft single-handedly kept Thelonious Monkfish in business for... Uh, they got the a plaque up on the wall for him. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, Miracle of Science, you know, Mary Chung. Like, it's just constantly sending bands, send bands down there. You know, f- four or five people, six people at a time, you know, overeating probably, you know. So So what did the city and what, what did they say when you had meetings? Uh, they couldn't really formulate a response. The big guys f- from Harvard Square... Um, they fam- they famously own the garage, and the bill and the block that the Sinclair is on. They own. Um, they wanted it, and you know the city was like, oh, uh, they, they didn't even really formulate a response, did they? It was too hard to do. There was more of that wishy washy. Oh, twelve months. Oh, eighteen months. Oh, well, why don't you guys buy the building or this or. That, it's like, oh, we don't own buildings, but then they do the foundry. Yeah. It's like, the, you know, it's like... The bait and switch is always the the city mayor promising you he's going to do stuff. I have rich friends. We have all these people. We'll bring it in. We'll make this thing happen. And then when you're actually in the meeting with the city and the comptroller of the check comes up, he's like, we don't rent out to musicians. Right. Later. Yeah. It was stew of it was a stew of conflicting information. Uh, uncarefully... And perfectly designed. It's perfectly too. So, designed to so discordance amongst the community so that nobody knows what's going on. Thanks for listening to the Art Stays Here podcast series, Culture Crisis Conversations. You can listen to all of the episodes from our website, artstayshere.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our partners, New Alliance Audio, New Alliance East, and The Record Co. And thank you for the funding from Boston's Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture. Join the movement at artstayshere.org.